Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a new episode of Luke's English Podcast. Before we start properly, I would like to just mention uh, the sponsor of this episode of Luke's English Podcast. Uh, this one is sponsored by italki. Uh, that is a service that helps you to find native speakers and qualified English teachers for online conversations and lessons. If you really want to make faster progress in your spoken fluency, then I really suggest that you try this service. They have thousands of native speakers that you can choose from. Some of them are qualified teachers. Others are just native speakers who want to just share their language with you. It's more flexible and affordable than many lessons that you might find in language schools. And you can have all the lessons and conversations from the comfort of your own home uh, because it's all done over the internet. Go to teacherluke.co.uk forward slash talk to sign up with italki free and then check out some of their teachers. And when you make a purchase, when you buy some lessons or conversation time, italki will then give you 100 italki credits, which is the equivalent of about $10 of free lessons, which you can apply to another purchase that you make in the future. Okay, that's a pretty good deal. Um, teacherluke.co.uk forward slash talk to, to get that deal. It makes total sense that italki has partnered with Luke's English Podcast. It's a great combination for your English. Um, okay, so that's the little promotional bit at the beginning. Let's now move forward to the content of this episode. And here's the jingle. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. This is a podcast for people learning English. My main aim in these episodes is to provide you with content that will help you to learn English through listening. Sometimes I teach you things directly in these episodes, and sometimes I just provide you with things that I think will engage your attention, keep you listening, and as a result, push your English to new levels. This one is one of those episodes in which I take you through a story. Sometimes when I do this in uh, my podcast, I just improvise these stories while recording. And I've done improvised stories before, like, for example, the pink gorilla story and the prawn story, the talking dog story, and also the phrasal verb chronicles. You can check those out in the episode archives. Those are improvised stories. Uh, but also, at other times, I read stories that I've written or which I know well. For example, I did a, a mystery story in the past. I think that was episode 29. Uh, that was called Mystery Story Narrative Tenses, which is one of the most popular episodes of my podcast. And I think uh, a lot of people discover my podcast through that episode because um, you can, as well as listening to a little story, you can learn about narrative tenses. So again, you can find that in the archive. That's Mystery Story Narrative Tenses. And also I wrote a sequel to that, which was called The Mystery Continues, which is a sort of Sherlock Holmes story that involves me 
and Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson involved in trying to solve the mystery that we heard in the previous story. And there are some references to bits of science fiction and, um, you know, it all takes place in London. Um, So that one is called The Mystery Continues. And yes, you can find that in the episode archive as well. Also, I've I've read other stories to you in the past. For example, um, I told you um, an old sort of story from English folklore called The Lampton Worm, which was a sort of of a mix of horror and legend and folklore. And also, I read um, A Christmas Carol by uh, Charles Dickens to you this Christmas. Uh, But in this case, I'm going to read through a story that I don't know, okay? I've, I've had a quick look at the synopsis of the story. It looks interesting. I know what kind of thing it is, but I actually have no idea where the story is going, and I don't know the outcome. So you and I will discover the story uh, and the events and the plot and everything. We'll discover all of that at the same time uh, during this episode. So what is the story that we're going to read? Well, it's one of those text-based adventures. All right, It's it's a text-based adventure that I've found online. What is a text-based adventure, you might be asking? Well, essentially, these are choose-your-own-adventure games that allow you to follow a story and make certain choices along the way. Your choices affect the direction of the story, and each choice that you make has a consequence. And sometimes stories like these can have more than one outcome, like they have you know more than one ending, depending on the, the, the choices you make. Now, when I was a kid, um, I used to have lots of these choose-your-own-adventure stories as books. We used to have these books... And, um, you know, you'd read a page of the book and it would describe part of the story and then you'd have a decision or um, like a a choice to make. And then, you know, depending on the choice, you'd move to a different page in the book and then read the the rest of the story there. And there are like lots of different outcomes and things. They were really fun and really uh, interesting. And in fact, I, I found that I would just read the stories again and again to find out the different outcomes. And I found that, you know, those were books that I would just read without having to make much effort. You know, my parents, um, when my brother and I were kids, my parents always encouraged us to read because they knew the value of reading and they would give us these books and stuff and they're trying to persuade us to read. And I don't know, for one reason or another, my attention span wasn't very good. I couldn't sort of focus on a lot of the books that my mum and dad gave to me. Um, you know, maybe because I had other things distracting me, like comic books that are obviously much easier to read because of the visual elements. And, you know, we had videos of Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Superman, and they would take my attention and all of my Star Wars toys and things like that. But the, t- the choose your own adventure books definitely grabbed my attention because of that interactive element. And I think that's that's actually also very good if you're learning English, because, you know, you need something that's engaging you need something that's going to hold your attention because, frankly, it can be quite difficult to follow a story uh, in English. You know, if you're just reading through the whole thing, it can be a little bit difficult. So you need something that's slightly interactive, that's slightly different and that might just be more fun as a way of making sure that you continue reading all the way until the end. So I think text-based adventures are actually a really good way for you to do lots of reading. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that in a moment. So this story, the one that's going to happen in this episode, um, I'm I'm playing this story online um, and I found it on a website called textadventures.co.uk. 
textadventures.co.uk. Now, I don't work for Text Adventures. They're not sponsoring the podcast or anything like that. Um, I've just discovered the website and I think it's just really good and I'd like to recommend it to you. Um, So textadventures.co.uk is a site that presents lots of different text adventures and they're all created and written by the users of the website. So they're not published by publishing companies or professional authors. They're just mostly produced by just ordinary users of the website who like to share their work free. They're all free. You can just you know, go to the website and just go through the text adventures free. Um, And they're very inventive. Some of the stories are like really inventive and creative and they're very good quality as well. Okay. And there are lots of different types of story that you can investigate. So there are mystery stories, horror stories, detective stories, science fiction stories, uh, comedy stories, role-playing games, and even stories based on real-life situations. Um, For example, (coughs) excuse me, for example, uh, there are some stories that people have written that are based on actual events in their lives. And uh, you kind of, you can follow uh, those events uh, as as they sort of happen in in the person's lives. Um, So I, I really recommend that you visit this site because there are loads of free text adventures that you can play, and I think they're a, a fantastic way of improving your English. Um, so how do text adventures work? Well, I think you probably get the idea. You read through a story, and at certain points, you're given options. You choose an option, and the story will then go in a different direction. Sometimes you can click on different parts of the text to get more information that will help you to make the right choice. For example, if you're reading a detective story, some of the words will be clickable. And at that point, you, you, you can start acting like a detective. You can investigate different aspects of the text. So you click on a word and it might give you a little bit more information, which will allow you to, to make the right choice. So essentially, it's, it's, it sort of replicates the experience of being a detective. You uh, investigate little details and you start to put all of the information together. You use deductive reasoning to make the right choices. Uh, and then, you know, you keep moving. And uh, you, you continue through the story until the conclusion, all right? Um, so this particular site is good just because of the high level of quality. Um, the stories that I've seen so far have been intelligently written. Um, there are lots of kind of text-based stories and quiz games on the on the internet that are a bit stupid, really. They're, people haven't spent much time on them. They're a bit dumb. Um, and they're a bit irritating. Um, but the ones on this site, generally, I've found to be very good uh, and written by intelligent, creative people. Clearly, the writers of these stories have put in a lot of time and enthusiasm. Um, and as a result, they're rewarding and fun and interesting. So for your English, they could be great because firstly, you'll do lots of reading and just simply reading a lot is good on its own. Just reading and trying to follow the story just naturally will be good for your English. Uh, but also, because it's all text, it's all text on online, that means that you can sort of take the words, you can you can manipulate the words easily using your computer. So, you know, you can copy paste any words that you don't know into a, an online dictionary and get definitions. And I would recommend the Cambridge Online Dictionary or the Macmillan Online Dictionary. They're both very good. Just Google Cambridge Online Dictionary for example, and they have all of their dictionary services free, available on their website. Now, Cambridge used to 
I mean, you can still buy them, you know, these big dictionaries published by Cambridge, big heavy volumes, they're quite expensive. But you don't actually need to buy buy them anymore. You can just use Cambridge's website. And, you know, everything you can get from the dictionary is now available online free. It's brilliant. So, you know, you can copy paste words from the stories into the dictionary if you want to check them. And you can use the the dictionary to kind of even hear the way that the words are are pronounced and to get meanings and synonyms and things like that. Um, So you can do that. Or you can copy paste the words into your own word lists. So you can then kind of come back to the words and check them again. Um, or you can, you know, copy paste them into flashcard applications, which will then help you to, you know, f- you know, work on those words and remember them and so on. Uh, the main thing is that these stories are fun and engaging, and that should make it easier and more rewarding for you to read. And the more you read, the better. Just like listening, the more you listen, the better, and the more you read, the better too. All right. So, in this episode, I've chosen to do a murder mystery adventure story. Uh, called simply Victorian Detective. That's the name of the story. Uh, this is because, um, you know, this this is because this story ties in quite neatly with the theme of the last episode. Um, have you listened to the previous episode? That one was called episode 337, Murder Mile uh, Walks, Stories of London's Most Infamous and Shocking Murders. And that was quite a long episode. Uh, essentially, it was a conversation with, with my friend and, well let's say for the first part of the episode we just sort of chatted about various things before we really got down to the main subject which was about um the uh, my friend Moz's uh, walking tours of central london that take in different murder sites okay uh, that may have been a complicated episode for some of you not just because it's long but also because uh, you know, it's a natural conversation, not graded for learners of English. And as a result, it might be difficult to follow everything. Um, Now, I may come back to that uh, episode later on and explain some of the vocab. I also may produce, as I mentioned in the the last episode, I may produce um, some study packs, like um, packs that you can download from my website that will allow you to understand and pick up language from specific episodes. So that's a project that I'm kind of working on. Um, So anyway, you might be able to download a study pack for episode 337 at some point, uh, which will really help your English. Uh, But um, anyway, what was I saying? So yes, so uh, I chose the Victorian detective story here because it sort of relates to the theme of that conversation I had with Moz about murder mysteries. And because I love Victorian era London, you know, sort of London in the 19th century, that Victorian period, which is such a classic period for London. And of course, you know, this makes us think of Sherlock Holmes, doesn't it? Victorian detectives, did murder mysteries in London in the Victorian period. It definitely makes us think of things like Sherlock Holmes. In fact, this story is heavily influenced by Sherlock Holmes. And, and I mean the old Sherlock, not the new ones. Or, you know, we... Obviously, I love the new Sherlock Holmes stories. They're brilliant. Um, But this story is more reminiscent of the older Sherlock Holmes, the classic Sherlock Holmes, which was um, written by Arthur Conan Doyle um, and featured stories that that took place in sort of foggy London uh, in the past. Um, So, yes, we love Sherlock Holmes on this podcast. So let's imagine that we are a Sherlock-style detective 
in this episode and let's go through this story together. So your aim in this episode is simply to follow the story just as usual, just like the same as usual, really. Just try to follow uh, every aspect of the story and also think with me about the choices that I have to make at various intervals, okay? So as we progress through the story, we'll have to think like a detective, um, make certain choices based on deductive reasoning and then attempt to solve the mystery at the heart of the story, okay? So follow follow the story and every now and then I will have to make a, a decision, um, and just kind of think about the decisions that you would make and listen to the decisions that I make. Are they the right or wrong choices? Um, you can see. And um, uh, I, I hope to be able to to complete this story in one episode. Uh, that might be a little overambitious, especially since I've already spoken for 15 minutes already. Uh, but I don't want this episode to go on forever. So I might divide this into two separate parts. We'll see how long the story takes. Um, now, I imagine that it might be a bit tricky to follow the story in this episode and understand everything that I'm saying, okay? Um, I expect that this is going to be a little bit complex. It's probably going to be a complicated story because usually these murder mystery stories are a bit complicated, aren't they? But I would say this um, at the beginning here. If you don't understand and you feel lost, which is probably going to happen, because honestly, when I read murder mystery detective stories, I usually feel a bit lost as well. That's just the nature of detective stories. But if you do feel lost and you don't understand what's going on, here is a strategy for you. Okay. So first of all, obviously, keep listening. I always say this, uh, of course, but I think it's good advice um, because good learners of English are able to tolerate some level of confusion and keep going. In the end, if you have the patience and the motivation to keep going, you might find it confusing in the short term, but in the long term, your English will benefit from it. Okay? To an extent, learning English is a bit like being a detective. Even when things are complex and don't make any sense and you feel confused and lost, you have to keep going, keep thinking and keep investigating based on the limited information that you have. So keep going, don't give up, and you'll find that things will eventually become clearer over time as you slowly piece together um, things like grammatical rules, vocabulary that you don't understand, and so on. Eventually, your brain will be piecing together what you know the things that you understand in order to try and understand the whole story, Okay, and that you know it's true for English as well. As you progress through uh, your learning of English, you you are naturally piecing together a sort of um, let's say uh, let's let's say you're piecing together a sort of a case, a case study of English. You're slowly you know putting your understanding of the language together based on the things you understand. All right, um, this is true for detective stories as well. There's always a period in the middle of a mystery story where all the events are strange and confusing, but everything comes together in the end. Sherlock Holmes solves the case and explains how it happened. Uh, and ultimately, if you persevere, if you keep going, it will be clearer later. And that's true in detective stories. It's also true in learning English. Also, um, since I'm playing this detective story online, you can do it too. You can play the story online as well. And I strongly suggest uh, that you find this text game and spend some time playing it. That way, you can actually check words that you don't know. You can read the text that I'm reading to you. And that will make this episode even more useful for your English. You could even choose to go through the text adventure with me 
at the same time while I'm playing it on this episode. Um, Listen to the episode and follow the adventure at the same time, for example. Or just listen now. Just sit back and, and listen to the episode. And then later on, you can play the game yourself. And if you're inventive, basically, you can find lots of cool ways of improving your English with this episode. So again, that website, it's textadventures.co.uk. And this story is called Victorian Detective. In fact, the full title of the story is Victorian Detective, the Shakespearean Bomber. The Shakespearean Bomber. So what does that make you think of? Shakespearean Bomber? This is going to be about some sort of bomb attack in Victorian London relating to Shakespeare? What is he using kind of clues like quotes from Shakespeare plays? Does it take place near the Globe Theatre or something like that? Um, Now, it's written by Peter Carlson. And I have to say, all credit for this story goes to Peter Carlson. Uh, He wrote the story. He wrote the game. He's done an excellent job. And again, I urge you to visit the website where you can read the story yourself and many others like it. And by the way, as I said, I don't work for text adventures or anything. I just think this is a great website and I want to credit them and I want to credit Peter Carlson for the story that I'm essentially reading out in this episode. Okay, so let's begin. Um, And uh, you can find the link to the Victorian detective story by Peter Carlson on the page for this episode, textadventures.co.uk. All right, then. So let's begin. So, okay, I'm now looking at the synopsis. So here we are, Victorian Detective by Peter uh, Carlson. And it says, you are a great detective living in Victorian London. Your internal monologue will guide you by clicking on links in the body of the text as you investigate a seemingly average mugging. A mugging, that's like a a robbery uh, in the street. Um, your Your eidetic memory is represented by your ability to reread all the story you've experienced. Eidetic memory. Um, this is basically a sort of um, perfect memory. You've got perfect recall. I mean, most detectives have got special skills. The, most detectives have a, have a particular set of skills, right? Um, in this case, um, it seems that uh, we have an eidetic memory. That means that uh, we, you know, we've got perfect memory. Um, which means that basically in the text story, you can go back and read the text that you've already read. Um, your intensely fast analysing ability is represented by your unlimited time between choices. Okay. And your vast knowledge is represented by the internet. So I guess this means that, for example, you know, if there are clues in the text, you can copy those clues, Google them, find out more, and that will help uh, you to, to solve the crime. Okay. And London needs you. All right. Okay, good. I feel a a sort of uh, a nice sense of responsibility here. Let's see if we can save the citizens of London from more hideous crimes. Um, So let's go play online. Here we go. So Victorian Detective, The Shakespearean Bomber by Peter Carlson. And here is where the, the story begins. Morning sunlight lazily struggles through the opaque smog of London. You crouch over a dead body in the alleyway of Lilt Lilt Street, thumbnail between your teeth in thought. So you're kind of, you know, you're like biting your thumbnail as you think. There's a half-smoked cigarette beside the corpse. 
That's interesting. Now, you're joined by your partner, whose name is Mardler. And at this point, Mardler says, Looks like a random mugging, says your partner, Mardler. You're both detectives for Scotland Yard. No identification on the victim. He was shot point blank and his wallet was stolen. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Hmm, no, it wasn't a random mugging, you reply. Ah, you just want this to be exciting because the chief took you off the mystery bomber case, laughs Mardler. You need some evidence to show Mardler that this wasn't random. How about the fact that the corpse was... And here we have three options. So we need to show Mardler that this wasn't just a random mugging. And we've got three things. So we can either show him that uh, the corpse was once a chemist, or that he was smoking a cigarette, or that he was familiar with combat. The corpse, by the way, that's the dead body, the dead man, the corpse, dead body. All right. So um, which one shall I choose? Shall I, shall I show Mardler that the corpse was once a chemist, that he was smoking a cigarette and that he was from, or that he was familiar with combat? Well, we don't know that much. We know that he, there was a half smoked cigarette beside the corpse. Let's have a little look. Cigarette is clickable. I'm going to click on the word cigarette. OK, it says you pick up the burnt cigarette hand rolled in red argyle paper and waft in the distinctive smell of tobacco. So you smell the tobacco. Your encyclopedic mind whirs as you analyse the scent. Turns out this is a rare Vietnamese strand of tobacco that's very potent. Judging by the guy's teeth, he's been smoking it for a while. The tobacco is called Thuoc Lao. Uh, And there are two small piles of Thuoc Lao tobacco ash beside the body. Hmm. So he's been smoking Thuoc Lao, which is very strong and uh, very smelly and distinctive. Um, All right. Um, I think he was smoking. I think it's that he was smoking a cigarette. Doesn't mention anything about him being a chemist or him being familiar with combat. Smoking a cigarette. I'm going to choose that one. Okay, good. I've just got one point for deductive reasoning. So that was the right choice. And it, it, uh, it goes on to say this. There are two small piles of tobacco ash on the ground, you say. The victim must have been here for long enough to smoke most of his cigarette, which means that he was standing here in the alley for a suspicious amount of time. Perhaps he knew his killer. Mardler scratches his chin. Hmm. We still don't know who he is or why he was killed. Well, there is something distinct about the victim, you say. Maybe it can help identify him. So apparently there's something distinct about the victim. What is it? Well, the options are that he had chemicals under his fingernails, he has a scar, that he was smoking a cigarette, or his clothes. Hmm. Okay. Um, All right. So um, uh, which one is it? So, well, we don't know about chemicals under the fingernails. We've got no evidence of that. No evidence of a scar. No evidence of anything particular about his clothes, but we do know he was smoking a cigarette, so let's click on that. So his cigarette um, is unique, apparently. Okay, and here we go. So his tobacco is rare. Viet- is a rare Vietnamese strand, you say. It's called Thuoc Lao. Only a handful of smoke shops in London sell that strand. Plus, the rolling paper is a distinct red argyle. We can go around to more exotic smoke shops in London until we find one that sells both Thuoc Lao and Red Argyle rolling paper. 
I suppose there aren't too many foreign shops to check out, says Mardler. Okay, so we're now going to check out some smoke shops in London in order to see which ones sell both Thwoklau and red argyle rolling paper. Okay, so we continue. You and Mardler find yourselves at the Gentleman's Flame, an exotic smoke shop in the Balham district. That's in South London. You see that they sell both Thwoklau and red argyle rolling paper. Mm. Browsing different pipes and strands of tobacco in the shop, you see a beautiful young woman. Mm. <laughs> she has long almond hair and a set of pearly white teeth. Okay. Behind the counter, you see the store owner arguing with his wife. She's fuming mad, ranting about missing profit from last month and his regular absence from home. How can I help you, gentlemen? asks the man as he pushes his wife away. He fans, he fans the room's thick air with a weathered top hat, revealing a head of diminishing wispy white hairs. Have you sold any Thwok Lao recently? asks Mardler as he puts his hand down on the counter. It's part of an investigation. Uh, I don't recall off the top of my head, chuckles the man, grinning a crooked smile of white teeth and wrapping his fingers on the counter expectantly. Don't recall. So what to do? This is interesting. So let's have a look. So there's a girl in the shop. Apparently she's a beautiful young woman. She's got long almond hair. She's got perfectly white teeth. These must be important details. Um, we see that the store owner is arguing with his wife. She's angry with him. She's ranting about the fact that there is missing profit from last month and the fact that he's regularly absent from home. Hmm, what's going on? Um, the man, the shop, um, the shop owner um, seems to be a bit of a weird guy. He's wearing this old top hat, uh, which he is using to fan the air because it seems to be hot. Uh, so what should we do? So we've got two options. We can threaten that we will tell his wife about the affair or we can tell him that you know he's a murderer. Well, we don't know he's a murderer, do we? That's a bit seems a bit strong to jump in with that. You're a murderer! Hold on. We don't have any proof for that. Um, we could threaten that we will tell his wife about his affair. So is he having an affair? It seems that the, uh, this detective seems to believe that he is having an affair. So let's choose that one. Okay, so we threaten that we will tell his wife about his affair. Uh, so, if you help us in our inquiries, I won't tell your wife about your affair with the girl on the other side of the store, you say. The man looks startled and caught off guard. What are you talking about? Don't try to bully me. You have her almond hair on your shoulder and garlic on your breath while she has garlic in her teeth, you continue. That's where you were last night. You spent the night and got breakfast at some garlic-loving restaurant. This is out of hand, stutters the man, now visibly sweating. So apparently the girl had garlic in her teeth. To be honest, it did... When it said that the girl had perfectly white teeth, that was clickable. I expect if I clicked on that, it would have told us that she did have some garlic in her teeth. Garlic in her teeth. <laughs> Lovely. Um, so... Uh, the man is shocked and uh, we continue to tell him what we know about the affair that he's having. So you're probably just a rich friend to her, you say. 
that woman has a new silver necklace, which I would place between £32 and £39, even though the rest of her clothes are plain. Sounds like your price range, considering your wife said you lost £35 recently. That woman isn't here to buy tobacco, I'm sure of that. She has no nicotine stains on her fingers and no smoke damage to her teeth. Right, what should we do? Should we continue schooling him like this or should we stop schooling him? To school someone is like to give someone a lesson, you know, uh, to lecture someone. I think we should continue schooling him. I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. I couldn't help notice, I couldn't help but notice terrier dog hairs on that woman's ankles. Interesting that you have a terrier-sized bite mark on your wrist. Is the dog still getting used to you? You ask sarcastically. Mardler looks over to you in surprise. You're really getting at this guy. Then there's the state of your wedding ring, you say. Dirty and unloved, much like your marriage. It's been removed recently, judging by its position compared to the tan line on your finger. How are you handling the guilt? So apparently the man has moved his wedding ring recently, which again is proof that he's having an affair. The man raises his arms as if he was a conductor, silencing an orchestra. Shh, he hisses. What do you want to know? Mardler interjects. Have you had a, cus- have you had a customer that, that bought Thwok Lao and Red Argyle rolling papers recently? You feel the need to interject. Of course he knew the victim. In fact, and here we have some options, and so we think that in fact his mistress was having an affair with the victim. He has the victim's hat or the victim was his best friend. Now, we've, we've heard the, the hat being mentioned. That it must have been mentioned for a reason. We don't know about the mistress having an affair with the victim, and we don't know that the victim was his best friend. We haven't got any information that suggests those things, but we have read about the hat, so let's check the hat. So, you were wearing the victim's... You are wearing the victim's hat right now, you say. You reach out and grab the nervous man's hat and spin it around. Observe the Thuok Lao stain on the rim and scratches on the rim from the glasses. The victim wore glasses and smoked Thuok Lao. There are small black hairs in the hat and we know the victim recently cut his hair. Also, your hair is grey. The victim's hair was black. And the hat even smells like peaches, just like the victim's hair gel. Okay, so again, these are details that I didn't investigate. These are clickable things that we would have discovered. If I'd clicked on some of the words, I probably would have discovered that the victim uh, had was wearing peach-smelling hair gel and other things. So how, do you, how did you get the victim's hat, barks Mardler? You have some explaining to do. He was short on money the other day, so he traded it for tobacco, cries the store owner. I swear... Do you have a name? asks Mardler. His name is, is Gobert Bovier, says the store owner. Gobert Bovier. So we have the name of the victim now. Let's continue. Mardler turns to you and speaks in a hushed tone. I don't trust this guy, he says. He shows up with Bovier's hat the day after he dies. What are we going to do then? Shall we arrest the store owner or not arrest the store owner? Well, I think it's obvious. We've got to arrest the store owner, right? He's got the victim's hat. There's all sorts of suspicious stuff going on. Let's arrest him. Okay. So you decide to toss the store owner, Arthur Trapp, 
in jail for a few days. Bovier's hat and his questionable absence last night are enough evidence to keep him locked up temporarily. Apparently, Gobert Bovier often isolated himself at home. Arthur Trapp tells you that he had ordered a Thwok Lao delivery before, so he knows the address. It's 313 Helmsman Way. You and Mardler venture to Bovier's house. So we're going to go to 313 Helmsman Way, which is where the, uh, the victim lived. So we knock on the door. Knock, knock. No one answers the door. So Mardler looks the other way while you pick the lock. Looks like someone else already tried to break in. You hear a satisfying click and push the door open to find a trashed home. So the place is completely trashed. It's a total mess. Someone tore the place up looking for something. So someone else has been here before you searching the property for something and the place is an absolute mess. Hmm. You sniff the air. Your hound-like nose picking up a variety of scents. Mardler walks around the room, stepping over notebooks and toppled furniture. His foot crunches down on a discarded bottle of vodka. The house has been turned upside down. There's a crooked painting on the wall of Claude Louis Berthollet, a French chemist from the mid-1700s. Bovier really liked chemistry. There's a bookshelf in the corner of the room that is missing several volumes. They're scattered across the floor. Bovier was hiding something. So where do you investigate? So we have two choices. We can investigate the bookshelf, book, book, hmm? the what? The bookshelf or the painting. All right. Now, there are a few words in this bit of text that are clickable. So first of all, uh, there, there are a, different, a number of different smells in the room. There's a discarded bottle of vodka on the floor. Uh, there's a painting, a crooked painting of Claude Louis Berth, Berthollet, a French chemist. And there's a bookshelf on the wall with some of the books scattered across the floor. So let's investigate the smells first of all. Let's click on that and see what it smells like. So apparently the entire house has a chemical smell. You pick up traces of gunpowder and sulphur. Hmm. Chemical smell in the house. So some sort of chemistry stuff was going on in the house. Now, since the title of the story is The Shakespearean Bomber, maybe maybe this was a bomb factory or something. Gunpowder and sulphur. I imagine these are ingredients used to, to, to create a bomb, right? Um, what about the vodka on the floor? Vodka. Let's see. So you recognize the vodka as... Her- oh, I'm going to have to pronounce this. Hrenuvua. Right, I'm sure that I've pronounced that wrong. Renuvra? Huh. A strong type of vodka found in Russia and Ukraine. Hello, Russian and Ukrainian listeners. Uh, I've probably pronounced that vodka wrong, if, it, if in fact it is a real brand of vodka. Um, anyway, apparently this is a strong type of vodka, which is found in Russia and Ukraine. This particular type of vodka is spiced with pepper, peas, garlic and horseradish root. So it's kind of a spiced vodka. Uh, Renuva, oh, how do I? How on earth do I pronounce that? Okay, I'm going to have a little look and see if I can find the correct, correct pronunciation of this vodka because I don't want to keep mispronouncing it. Let's see. Okay, according to pronouncewiki.com, it's pronounced like this. Let's see if I can raise the volume. Can you hear this? Let's see. Renuva ha. Renuva ha. 
Okay, all right. So Hrenu Vaha, let's go with that. All right, so uh, Hrenu Vaha is most commonly made at home because it's easy to prepare. Hmm, all right, fine. So what does that mean? Russia and Ukraine, is that the thing? Um, are we supposed to inf- to infer here that the Russians and Ukrainians are involved in this case? We'll find out, I expect. So that's the vodka. So uh, next is the, the painting of Claude-Louis Berthollet, uh, a French chemist. So let's have a little look at that. So it says, You always appreciate a fellow brilliant mind, and Berthollet was a genius, determining the chemical composition of ammonia in 1785. You've recently been experimenting with using iodine fumes to reveal fingerprints to identify people, as studies by Jan Evangelista Perkin have shown that are nine that, that, that are nine distinct fingerprint patterns. Uh? Uh, Alright, so apparently I've recently been using iodine to understand uh, fingerprints. All right, but uh, so Berthollet was a was a genius, and he he was he was interested in the chemical composition of ammonia. Hmm, I don't think that tells us very much, does it? Uh, then the bookshelf. Let's have a look at the bookshelf, and it says there are deep three foot long scratches on the floor on one side of the bookshelf. Deep three foot long scratches on the floor on the side of the bookshelf. Hmm. This sounds to me like one of those invisible doors, you know, like a secret door in a bookshelf. You like if you move one of the books, maybe the door will slide open, and that might be why there are scratches on the floor. Like as the door of the the the, the room opens, it creates scratches on the floor. Um, all right. So I think we should investigate the bookshelf. Now the painting is crooked, which means it's not straight. So maybe there's something behind the painting. There might be a safe on the wall. You know the way that books, uh, that pictures always cover secret safes that are you know hidden in the wall. I think we're going to look at the bookshelf first. Let's see if it's a secret door. Okay. So you say Bouvier's been moving his bookshelf. You say as you point to the grooves in the floor beside it. Something's hidden behind it. You and Mardler push the shelf to the side and reveal a small hidden door. Ah, you fiddle with the lock for a minute before it clicks open. Down a narrow flight of stairs, you find yourself in a secret laboratory. Fantastic, a secret laboratory. It appears whoever broke into this house and roughed it up missed this room, you say. Okay, um... So Mardler begins rifling through notes and blueprints, looking through all the notes and the blueprints. Hmm, Bouvier's been making bombs, he says. Ah, I was right. I was right. I must be some kind of genius. I was right. Um, You look through Bouvier's notes as well. You immediately recognise the composition of Bouvier's explosives. Bouvier was deeply involved in the terrorist bombing case that you were taken off of. Ah, remember at the beginning... There was this sort of mur- this bombing murder case that uh, the police chief decided to remove me from. Well, apparently Bovier was involved in the, the 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 terrorist bombing in that case. Ah, all right. So it's all connected to another case. Let's continue. So you pick up an envelope off Bovier's desk. It looks important, as other notebooks and beakers have been pushed away from it. So there's this envelope sitting on the desk. We pick it up. You flip open the envelope and pull out a letter written in black ink. 
and it reads like this. May the 5th, GB, Urban, urgent, change of plans, meet at alleyway off Lilt Street on Tuesday, May the 19th, midnight, burn all previous letters, Shakespeare. Huh. You look closely and see subtle scratches on the envelope, as if someone had written something else on a paper on top of it. The nearly invisible scratches read 51.28-2.87. Time to make some deductions about this note and its sender. So we now have three options. So first of all, the note was written on a train. Hmm. The note was written under duress, so like the note was written under stress or under pressure or under threat of violence, maybe. So the note was written under duress. And uh, the note was written on a boat. Huh. All right. I've no idea if the note was written on a train, on a boat or under duress, like under pressure. Let's see. Uh, So we can click on certain things. Let's click on the envelope and see what that tells us. So the envelope is thick and slightly damaged by salt water. It was sealed with white wax that smells like raw milk. It's spermaceti, a wax found in the head of sperm whales that is used for buoyancy and echolocation. Echolocation. Uh, Spermaceti wax is uncommon for a standard letter in London. Right, so that obviously points towards the fact that the, the letter was written on a boat, doesn't it? Because the, the, the envelope is damaged by salt water and it's the envelope is sealed with a white wax that um, comes from the head of a sperm whale. Okay, sperm whales, you know, these are types of whales. Um, and the, the wax from the head of a sperm whale is used for various things like buoyancy, echolocation, and in this case, uh, wax for sealing the envelope. All right, so I think it's probably on a boat. That's probably enough evidence to say that it was written on a boat. But let's have a look at some of the other things. Apparently, the, the, the writing is written in black ink, so we can click on the, on the writing. It says, The penmanship is smooth beside a few jerks and bumps. Perhaps the author of this letter was moving while it was being written. Well, yeah, of course, it was, there were jerks and bumps because it was on a boat, and you know the way that boats move. Could still be on a train, but like the the previous bit of evidence suggests that it was on a boat. Um, GB is written uh, under the date on the letter. Let's click on GB. What does that mean? This is undoubtedly short for Gobert Bovier. All right, so this is uh, obviously a letter for Gobert Bovier. Um, Then we've got, um, it says, urgent change of plans. Meet at the alleyway off Lilt Street on Tuesday, May the 19th, midnight. Lilt Street on Tuesday, May the 19th. That's the scene of the murder, isn't it? Let's click on that. So this is the time and place of the murder. This letter is tantamount to a death sentence for Gobert Bovier. So it seems that... Okay, so whoever wrote the letter probably knew... Probably planned to kill Gobert Bovier um, at that location. So the, the, the writer of this letter could be the murderer. All right. Um... And it's the the writer of the letter has signed his name Shakespeare. Is that his real name? Let's click on Shakespeare and see. This must be a code name for the sender of this letter. He wants to keep his identity safe, clearly. All right. So Shakespeare is just a, a code name. So we still don't know who the murder is. 
Then it says, you look closely and see subtle scratches on the envelope as if someone had written something else on a paper on top of it. You know, like when you, you write something on a piece of paper and the pen pushes, um, you know, it kind of scratches the table underneath the paper or it might leave an impression on, on any other paper that's underneath. Um, so apparently there are some scratches like that on the envelope and they read 51.28, 2.87. Let's click on that. It says, are these coordinates? Is this a code? Is this a secret language? Is this the code for a vault lock? A vault lock. Huh. Now we did have, um, we, we did actually have, uh, there was the picture on the wall, wasn't there? Well, anyway, I, my options are, the note was written on a train, it was written on a boat, or it was written under duress. I think the note was written on a, on a boat. So let's click that. Okay, good, good. That's the correct answer. But there are more clues that you can draw from it. What is probably true? So the note was written off the coast of England, the note was written off the coast of France, or the note was written off the coast of Belgium. Oh my God, that's difficult. How, how do I know? France, England, or Belgium? Uh, well, I guess if the person has signed his name Shakespeare, that would suggest an English person, wouldn't it? It's written in English. Um, the person knows the address in, in London. It suggests England. Uh, what about the, the sperm whale thing? Um, hmm. Well, there aren't exactly sperm whales off the coast of France or Belgium or England, are there? Maybe there were at that time. I'm going to go for England. Let's see. Oh, no, that was a fail. A deductive reasoning fail. Um, did you get the right one, ladies and gents? Well, apparently England was wrong. It says this was a tricky one. The numbers scratched on the letter were latitude and longitude coordinates that point to the North Sea beside Belgium. All ah, right, so those numbers were coordinates, like latitude and longitude coordinates. Someone was calculating location right before or after writing the note. Ah, I see. Now it's becoming more guesswork. All right, so let's see. We've got three options. The note was written by the captain. The note was written by the navigator. The note was written by the master gunner. Well, I would imagine it was written by the navigator if they're writing coordinates down. It's probably the navigator, isn't it? Let's choose navigator. Yes, good. Brilliant. Correct. You turn to Mardler. Take a look at this letter, you say. It can help us identify who killed Bouvier. Mardler holds the letter and studies it. What do you think of it? Well, it was written on a whaling ship, probably off Belgium, and probably by the navigator, you explain. Look at how the handwriting is jerked to the side at certain parts, and the letter is damaged by salt water. That means it was probably written on a rocking boat, the envelope was sealed with spermaceti, which is uncommon for a common Londoner, yet abundant for a whaler. If you look carefully, you can see coordinates imprinted on the letter, 51.282.87. They're longitude and latitude calculations, and they pinpoint the ship in the North Sea off the coast of Belgium, a common whaling ground. Because they're carefully calculated coordinates, I assume that they were written by the navigator of the ship. The author of this letter wouldn't leave it just anywhere, so whoever wrote this is also the one that wrote those coordinates. Interesting story, remarks Mardler. We can investigate recent ledgers at the docks 
and find out if any whaling ships have taken trips to Belgium, you say. Right, so let's go to the docks and investigate uh, the records of uh, whaling ships. So we continue. Mardler flips through another notebook. His eyes grow wide. There's another bomb set, he says. We have to do something immediately. I'll go to the station and get some explosive experts right now. There's a bomb due to explode in an hour at Aldous Theatre. Mardler heads off to the police station to recruit some more officers for disarming the bomb while you get a start towards Aldous Theatre. Londoners will soon arrive for seating for the play Othello as late afternoon light glows through the thick fog of the city. Wow, so Mardler has found um, another set of explosives um, apparently written in a notebook. And so this is an immediate emergency. Apparently the the bomb... um, uh, while you get started towards Aldous Theatre. Okay, so the, the bomb is going to explode at Aldous Theatre, which is where uh, a, a performance of a Shakespeare play called Othello is, is due to take place. Um, so, Mardler goes to the police station to get the explosive experts, but we are going to go to the theatre to check it out. So, you push past two thick-bearded Russians, leaving the theatre as you enter. Hmm, thick-bearded Russians. The smell of alcohol and horseradish hits your nose. Ah, Suspicious. At first you pay it no mind, but you see someone has just discarded a bottle outside the theatre, exactly like the one Mardler stepped on at Bovier's house. Oh, how do you how do you pronounce that vodka name again? Hrenuvaha. Okay, right. So the Hrenuvaha drinking Russians have disappeared into the winding streets of London, but you have a nagging feeling that they are involved in the case. You'll have to check back to that later. Hmm. So those thick bearded r- vodka drinking, stereotypical, cliched Russians seem to be involved in this case. Right, thick-bearded, vodka-drinking Russians. <laughs> Not much of a stereotype, is it? Well, it's just a, you know, it's a fun mystery story. Um, all right, so uh, what's going on? What's going on? Let's, let's have a look at the, um, the, the Shakespeare play that's happening in the theatre first. So we click on the word Othello, and it says, uh, A tragedy, uh, Othello is a tragedy written by Shakespeare in 1603. Not the author of the note, mind you, but rather the famous playwright. Okay, you know Othello, Tra- Shakespeare tragedy, 1603. All right then, fine. So that's what we know about Othello. Uh, must have something to do with the case. Let's click on the thick, these stereotypical thick-bearded uh, um, 19th century Russians. So the two Russians look similar enough to be brothers as they walk past you. They're large and muscular with thick black beards speckled with sawdust. Their hands are calloused and bruised from hard labour with heavy tools. So they've got rough uh, hands with, like, you know, um, calluses, like blisters on their hands, uh, and bruises from hard labour with heavy tools. They have mud from the shore of the Thames on their boots, along with burrs from the uh, uh, puncture vine. The puncture vine. Okay, so, all right, they're large Russian guys, uh, muscular. They obviously do some manual labour with heavy tools. They've got mud on the sh- mud on their boots, and this mud comes from the, 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 the River Thames. And also, you can see that they have some burrs from this puncture vine. Burrs. 
You know, like some plants, uh, if you walk through these plants, they will leave these sticky little balls on your, your trousers. Those are called burrs. They're basically seed pods that stick to your trousers. So apparently um, these Russians have been spending time on the shore of the Thames and they've, they've obviously come into contact with puncture vine at some point. Huh, who are these mysterious, stereotypical uh, 19th century Russians who've got sawdust in their beards and mud on their legs and burrs on their trousers? Um, let's continue and we'll find out more. Okay. Um, so, we, you enter the theatre, flashing your badge to gain quick access. Oh, that's, that's good, isn't it? I've, I've always wanted to flash my badge to gain quick access. Police! Uh, police detective, move aside, stand aside, police detective coming through. So you, you flash your badge to gain quick access. The workers are on, the workers on set are running through some preliminary artificial smoke tests on the stage, creating a thick fog in the theatre to set the mood for Othello. You recall the careful position of the bomb as described in Bouvier's notes and find it hidden under your seat. Your main concern is the ethyl azide primary explosive used to detonate bulk uh, to detonate the bulk of the bomb. You call for the theatre to be evacuated. Careful not to touch the bomb, but there's the problem of controlling the heat of the ethyl azide. <sighs> okay, so it looks like we found the bomb. Um, we've called for the theatre to be evacuated. We have to be careful not to touch the bomb. And there's also the problem of the heat of the ethyl azide, which is basically the primary explosive. So what are we going to do? Let's click on ethyl azide. I think that's how you pronounce it. Ethyl azide or ethyl azide is detonated in order to initiate the larger secondary explosive that it's attached to. Ethyl azide or ethyl azide. Let's check the pronunciation. Right, apparently it's pronounced ethyl azide. So... Ethyl azide is particularly tricky because it's sensitive to impact and heating. If anyone had sat on the seat, uh, apparently the bomb is under a seat, if anyone had sat on the seat, the shock would have activated the explosion. Ethyl azide has been known to detonate at room temperature in some cases. You can feel from a distance that the bomb was cooled before being transported, but it's slowly warming up. Oh my God, this is pretty dramatic stuff. So um, you're getting this, everyone. You got this. That Looking at the bomb, there's, there's ethyl azide, which is the, the initial explosive, which will set off the whole bomb itself. Uh, it's sensitive to impact and heating. It was placed under a seat. If anyone had sat on the seat, the impact would have caused the bomb to go off. And also, the temperature of the bomb is important. And in fact, apparently the bomb was cooled down. So the bomb was placed in a refrigerator or a freezer or something before being transported. And now it's slowly warming up. So time is of the essence. If this bomb reaches room temperature, it could explode. Oh, it's dramatic, isn't it? Let's see what's going to happen. So you enter the theatre. No, we've done that. We've we've uh, flashed our badge to gain quick access. But we know now that uh, time is important. So what are we going to do? Extinguish the lights or utilise the source of the artificial fog? Utilise the lights or... Extinguish the lights or utilise the source of the artificial fog? I don't think we should extinguish the lights. I know that theatre lights can be very hot, but how am I going to see anything if I extinguish the lights? Instead, we've got the artificial fog. You know that stuff, dry ice? 
How do how do they make dry ice? Isn't it like frozen some sort of frozen stuff? It's like frozen a uh, kind of frozen gas, I think. Something like that. It's anyway, I think they use like these some frozen material and they mix it with water and that causes sort of fog like fake fog to be produced. So I imagine that the source of the artificial fog is cold. So maybe what we should do is pour the artificial fog onto the uh, the bomb to keep it cool. I'm going to do that. Ah, good. That was the correct thing to do. Uh, and it says, you call out for help from one of the stagehands. Artificial fog is produced using dry ice, which sublimes at minus 109, minus 109 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, some brave workers carry over insulated boxes of dry ice to you. You cautiously take out chunks of dry ice and strategically place them around the bomb, trying to keep it cool long enough for the bomb's removal experts to arrive. About ten minutes later, you see Mardler and a squad of officers enter the theatre. They come over to the bomb and you retreat to safety as they handle the explosive and dispose of it properly. Nice work delaying the bomb, says Mardler. Nice work delaying the bomb. That seat was intended for Sir Joseph Swan. It might have been random, but maybe he was being targeted. Right, so who is Sir Joseph Swan and why was he being targeted um, by this bomb attack? Now, I can click on Sir Joseph Swan. Let's find out who he is. So, Sir Joseph Swan recently demonstrated the power of the light bulb, a new product that he intends to get a patent for. Electric lighting is the future. All right, so Sir Joseph Swan is, is apparently about to um, patent and then start selling this new invention called a light bulb. Obviously, a light bulb is something we all have. I've got a light bulb here in my hands right now. So, you know, if you've got electric lighting in your in your house, you put a light bulb in the socket and bingo, you get light. So that's a, a light bulb. They're made of glass. Sometimes they, uh, you know, they uh, the light bulb will, will go out and you need to replace it. So light bulb. So apparently he's just um, invented or is going to patent uh, the light bulb. Um, so maybe he was being targeted by people who have a vested interest in other forms of lighting. You know, this could be a form of corporate sabotage or something. Maybe the murderers or the would-be killers um, had some interest in another form of lighting. I don't know, candles, wax, wax candles. That makes me think of the uh, the whaling, the people who were involved in whaling, because whaling at that time, um, what they what they used to do is, you know, part of what they would use the whale for would be to create wax, which I imagine could then be used to make candles. So maybe this is some kind of angry candle producer who um, wants to stop Sir Joseph Swan from inventing the light bulb because it will obviously put them out of business. Now, let's see. Okay. Now, I think that part one of uh, this murder mystery is, is, is about to stop in a moment. Let's investigate a little bit more and then we'll stop and then I guess this will have to carry on in part two. So, um, all right, so maybe Sir Joseph Swan was being targeted. Let's see. So you interview Sir Joseph Swan about the possible assassination attempt. He's very rattled. He's like very stressed out by it. He explains that the first terrorist bomb from a few weeks ago killed one of his fellow scientists 
working on a way to utilize electric light. Hmm, this is intriguing. Night begins to fall on London as you catch the harbour master before he leaves for the night. So apparently we've gone down to the uh, the, the docks to investigate, um, you know, the, the shipping, um, and we so we we we've managed to catch the harbour master. He, I guess, he's the guy in charge of the docks. You question him about a whaling ship that's recently arrived in London from Belgium and was off the coast of Belgium on May the fifth. The the Zoet Dame, the Zoet Dame, of small whaling ship matches your description. You and Mardler board the vessel to investigate. So apparently the the harbour master said, yeah, it's the Zoet Dame. There it is. Um, And so Mardler and and me, uh, Mardler and I have boarded the vessel in order to investigate. Okay. So you make your way to the navigator's cabin and look through his notes. The handwriting matches Shakespeare's and you see a copy of Macbeth and Hamlet on the desk. The harbour master has the address of the ship captain and gladly hands it over to you. We can ask the captain about the navigator and find out where he lives, says Mardler. It looks like you were right about the navigator of the Zoet Zoet Dame writing that note to Bovier. Let's call this ship the Zoet Dame, okay? All right, so interesting. Interesting this. So it seems that we were right about the navigator of the, the, the ship being the one who wrote the letter. There's evidence in the fact that there are Shakespeare uh, plays, uh, books of Shakespeare plays there on the boat. Um, and we're going to ask the captain of the ship to tell us about the navigator. All right. Um, I'm going to just investigate the, the Zoet Dame a little bit. It says, you skim through the logs and ledgers recording the Zoet Dame's activity you notice discrepancies in the numbers regarding profit and weight. That's odd. Hmm. So someone is um, not writing the right numbers into the ledgers, right? Someone's lying about money. Maybe there's some some corruption going on here on the boat. Uh, maybe there's a bit of fraud happening regarding the profit. So maybe there's some criminal activity going on regarding the 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 profit of this whaling ship. That's interesting. Uh what else? I also want to investigate the 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 ship a little bit more. It says you catch a flowery scent as you walk through the narrow passages of the ship. Is that papaver somniferum? My God, I didn't realise there was going to be so many different types of chemicals and uh, and other uh, terms that I don't know in this story. But anyway, papava somniferum, papava somniferum. That may be the smell that I can that I can smell on this ship. It's hard to identify the smell with the overwhelming odour of fish, but it could be papava somniferum. Hmm. All right. But anyway, we're now going to visit the captain because we've got his address. We're going to visit the ship's captain and ask him about the navigator, because the navigator at the moment is our prime suspect. Let's let's go and speak to the captain, and then we will um, we'll probably stop here and then continue in part two. All right. So you arrive at the home of the Zoet Dame's captain, Jake Blakely. Mardler raps on the door. Blakely answers the door, disoriented and tired. His eyes grow wide as he sees you. We'd like to ask you a few questions, Mr. Blakely, says Miss, says Mardler. 
Blakely panics and turns to run, tipping over a bookshelf in his wake to slow you down. You and Mardler give chase, racing after the captain as he bursts through his back door and runs out into the streets of London. Blakely darts across the street in front of a speeding carriage drawn by horses. The driver yells at him, but he doesn't see you. Right. Wow. Suddenly, dramatic action. Um, so we we arrived at the captain's house. We knocked on the door. Blakely answered. He seemed tired and disoriented. And then he seemed surprised to see us. Mardler says we Mardler said we'd like to ask you a few question questions. Blakely panicked and ran away, tipped over the bookshelf to slow us down. We chased him into the street. Uh, the the captain burst out through the back door of the house and ran out into the streets of London. He ran quickly across the street in front of a speeding carriage drawn by horses. The driver yells at Blakely, Oi, watch out! But the driver doesn't see us. Right, what are we going to do? We've got two options. We can sprint past the front of the carriage. uh, Or we can slow down and go around the carriage. So basically, there's a risk involved. Are we going to run in front of the carriage? Or we're going to go round the back of the carriage. So it's a bit of a risk. If we run in front of the carriage, because the driver hasn't seen us, we might get run over by the horses in the carriage. It's extremely dangerous. But it's the quicker way. We've got to catch this captain. Or we slow down, we go around the back of the carriage because it's too risky. So what do you think, ladies and gents? What do you think I should do? Shall I run in front of the horses um, in order to chase... um, what's his name, to chase Blakely? Or should I go around the back, take it safe, avoid the danger of the horses and uh, chase Blakely? You know, and we might lose him, but we'll still be alive. What do you think I should do? I'm going to stop here. This is the end of part one. Um, and you'll have to wait and see what happens in part two. Okay, so are we going to catch the captain? Are we going to, First of all, are we going to get trampled to death by horses? Uh, and that'll be the end of the story. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Or um, are we going to go round the carriage and uh, lose Blakely? Or are we going to catch Blakely? And how? what's the captain going to tell us? What? What's the motivation of this navigator on this whaling ship? Why, um, first of all, why was he sending this letter to Bouvier, the French chemist? I think he's French, maybe maybe Belgian. The chemist working in London. How is the navigator involved in the murder of the man uh, at the beginning of the story? And what about this side plot of the bomb? Why was Bouvier involved in bomb attacks on scientists working to produce the electric light bulb? What on earth is going on? I don't really know. It's an interesting case, don't you think? I'm not sure what's happening. Um, You'll have to wait until part two in order to find out the rest of this uh, intriguing mystery. Um, or, of course, you can carry on if you want. You could uh, visit the page on textadventures.co.uk. You could f- check out Victorian Detective on that website and you can play through the game and see what happens. And then you can listen to me as I you know, carry on in the next episode. All right, that's it. Leave your comments on the page for this episode. I'd love to know what you think. Um, I'd like to know what you think of the story and what you think uh, about my choices and what do you think about the mystery? Do you, do you have the solution? Have you got any ideas what's what's going to happen? Um, let me know, teacherluke.co.uk um, and that's how you can leave your comments. Um, just find the page for this episode. Uh, that's it. Don't forget also 
that um, you you should also check out sponsors for this podcast. Uh, if you like mystery stories, then why don't you download a free audiobook from audible.com? So um, Audible, you know, they are the internet's top provider of downloadable audiobooks. And they're all like really excellent books published by some of the, written by some of the world's best authors and read out by professional actors. And they have loads and loads of different mystery stories, crime stories, and all sorts of things. All of the Sherlock Holmes stories, the entire works of Arthur Conan Doyle are available, not to mention all of the other great sort of mystery stories that have been written in English over the years. Agatha Christie, for example, you could check out some Ag- Agatha Christie. If you want to download a free audiobook from Audible, uh, you can just go to teacherluke.co.uk forward slash audible, where you can sign up for a free trial. And that includes a, a, the download of a, of a free audiobook. And if you don't like the service, you can just cancel and keep the audiobook. Right. So that's good. Um, also, the other thing that you should be doing, of course, is practicing speaking. You, you've got to try to speak as much as possible. This is a very important way of improving your English. Listening is great. Listening to this podcast is fantastic. But really, you can get maximum results when you actually activate your English by speaking to people, ideally native speakers. And you can do that now on the Internet in fact, I have a deal with my other sponsor, that's italki, um, which means that you can um, sign up for lessons or conversations with native speakers using italki. And if you do that, if you make a purchase, then italki will give you 100 free italki credits, which you can use on your next purchase. Okay, that's a pretty good deal. Uh, to take advantage of it, just go to teacherluke.co.uk forward slash talk. Okay. And I will be back in your headphones or in your speakers very soon with part two of this mystery story. Uh, But until then, I shall bid you farewell for now. So that's it. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.